welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. Welcome to our Women in Arbitration podcast mini-series, a platform for women's voices across the global international arbitration community. I'm Lucy Winnington-Ingram, an international arbitration lawyer based in Reed Smith's London office. In these episodes, we will hear from leading women in the international arbitration space and discuss industry news, trends, developments, and matters of interest. And with that, let's get started. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Reed Smith's podcast channel, Arbitral Insights, and its Women in Arbitration mini-series. I'm Vanessa Tiffry, a Senior International Arbitration Associate in Reed Smith's Paris office. Our topic today is the characteristics and challenges of arbitrating environmental disputes. It's an important hot topic. Obviously, the environment has taken the front stage in recent years in all aspects of our lives. Not one day passes without breaking news regarding climate change, pollution, energy policies, or national legislations for the protection of the environment. Disputes and their resolution are no exception. We will see today that as a result, more and more arbitrations comprise an environmental component and that tackling this environmental component raises many challenges. We are delighted that Judith Levine, our guest speaker today, accepted to present her perspective on the main characteristics and challenges of arbitrating environmental disputes. Judith is an independent arbitrator who witnessed firsthand the emergence of environmental claims in arbitration, notably when she administered some of the world's most complex disputes at the Permanent Court of Arbitration, where she worked for over a decade as senior legal counsel. Judith has expensive dispute resolution experience in public international law, foreign investment, and commercial contract cases, and she regularly speaks and publishes on dispute resolution, including arbitral procedure, investment arbitration, public international law, contracts, ethics, climate law, and business and human rights. Two of her latest contributions include a chapter on climate change dispute options in the context of Belt and Road business disputes and a contribution on procedural issues and innovations in environment-related investor state disputes in the forthcoming research handbook on environment and investment law. Thank you for joining us today, Judith. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be part of this podcast series. I was explaining a few minutes ago, that not one day passes without breaking news relating to the environment. There have been quite a lot of developments last week that might impact arbitration and arbitration practitioners. Would you care to give us your thoughts on this to start with? Sure. Indeed, I think it's really important before we get into a discussion about environmental arbitration to keep in mind that arbitration is just one part of a much wider legal landscape of environment-related dispute mechanisms. As you mentioned this past week, we've seen a number of groundbreaking courtroom and boardroom decisions around the world in relation to climate action and environmental protection. And that's against the background of 
Thousands of earlier actions brought before national courts, commissions of inquiry, securities regulators and other complaints bodies. Perhaps the most prominent example, at least until last week, was the Urgenda case against the Netherlands, in which 866 Dutch citizens were successful in obtaining orders that the Dutch government must lower its greenhouse gas emissions. And that case had great impact because a few months afterwards, the Dutch government announced a package of measures to comply with the judgment, including cuts to coal use, limits to livestock, subsidies for greener homes. And as we'll see, some of those government actions have in turn led to arbitrations being filed against the Netherlands. Similar cases to Agenda were then brought against governments worldwide, Pakistan, Germany, Ireland, largely run on grounds of human rights and constitutional arguments. But administrative law and judicial review of government decision-making has also been really fertile ground for environmental actions, including last year the case that quashed a decision by the UK government to approve the third runway at Heathrow because the government had failed to take into account Paris Agreement obligations. And in my own country last Friday, the Federal Court of Australia handed down a landmark ruling finding that the Minister for Environment must take into consideration as a matter of administrative law the potential harm to children in determining whether to approve a coal mine extension in New South Wales. And the judge also found, and this was what was novel, that as a matter of tort law, the minister owes a duty of care to Australian children who might suffer potential catastrophic harm from the climate change implications of approving the extension of the coal mine. We've also seen in Australia a court blocking the development of a coal mine in the Gloucester case and a complaint lodged with the UN Human Rights Committee by Torres Strait Islanders accusing the government of violating their human rights by not adequately reducing greenhouse emissions or helping them to adapt to changing conditions. We also saw a young man sue his superannuation fund over its management of climate risk, thus showing that it's not only government but companies that are the target of legal actions. And companies were also targeted in a Human Rights Commission investigation in the Philippines against almost 50 major fossil fuel companies. And you might have read that last week in the US, shareholder activism has led to changes on the board of ExxonMobil, um, a company which also faced prosecutions from state attorneys general over fraud on investors for failing to disclose climate risk. And finally, in another development for legal actions against private companies, last week the District Court in The Hague held that the Royal Dutch Shell must reduce carbon emissions by 45% by the end of 2030 in accordance with the Paris Climate Agreement, to which Shell is obviously not a party. And that claim had been brought by seven NGOs and over 17,000 co-claimants. And the court took into account Dutch civil law, soft law instruments like the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, and the Urgenda decision itself. And this decision was a really significant one because it was the first time a national court had compelled a private company to reduce its emissions in line with the Paris Agreement. Now, what does all of this have to do with arbitration? What does it mean for practitioners like, like us, you and I? Well, the rush of legal activity doesn't mean there's no place for arbitration. Indeed, there is already and will continue to be plenty of arbitration relating to environmental issues broadly, as well as arising from the transition to green economy. But those other legal actions are a useful reminder that arbitration doesn't happen in a dispute resolution vacuum. 
And I think the context can be relevant to arbitration in three broad ways. First is that these legal actions build pressure and that pressure can lead to government action, which in turn may lead to the commencement of arbitrations. And this occurred in the Netherlands where two companies, Uniper and RWE, have turned to and notified their intention to commence arbitration under the Energy Charter Treaty against the Netherlands. Secondly, one important byproduct of the national litigation, which is predominantly cases on the public record, what it means is there's a growing body of judicial acceptance following rigorous forensic investigation of the science of climate change. And those findings then become a matter of public record. They build up, they they become cited by other courts and other tribunals in the context of other disputes. And thirdly, this pressure mounted on governments and now companies and their stakeholders in other legal fora is all part of a snowballing force that will lead to increased focus and investment in renewable energy projects, like wind and solar farms, that mitigate the effects of climate change, as well as projects adapting to climate change, like the development of technologies or construction of seawalls. And all of that activity will mean a surge in projects, many with a cross-border element, in turn creating a web of contractual and other legal relationships for which arbitration might be the best mechanism. And I think it will be particularly suited to disputes that have a transboundary element and the parties desire a neutral and flexible dispute resolution mechanism with an enforceable outcome. And of course, importantly, all the parties have consented to that process. Interesting. For our next topic, I suggest we take a step back. Arbitration of environmental claims have only been in the spotlight for a few years, but there have been reports of cases for decades. Would you care to share a few examples with us? That's right. So arbitration with an environmental angle is not actually particularly new. At the PCA, for example, where you mentioned I worked for over a decade, there were increasing instances in environment-related disputes, whether that be for interstate, investor state or commercial disputes. So first in the interstate context, PCA cases have established or applied key principles of sustainable development law. For example, in the Iron Rhine arbitration, which was between Belgium and the Netherlands, I think around 20 years ago, that was about the resumed use of a railway line. And the it arose from a 19th century treaty, but the tribunal in that case noted that even that old treaty has to be subject to a dynamic and evolutive interpretation in light of modern standards of international environmental law. And in the more recent Kishinganga case concerning the downstream environmental impact of a hydroelectric plant in the Kashmir area between India and Pakistan, the tribunal referred to states' obligations not to cause transboundary harm and their need to manage natural resources in a sustainable manner. There have also been over a dozen PCA-administered cases under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, and several of those touched on environmental issues. For example, the Arctic Sunrise case brought by the Netherlands against Russia concerning the arrest of the Greenpeace ship during protest over Arctic drilling. In Bangladesh versus India, the tribunal was tasked with drawing a sea boundary in the Bay of Bengal, which is an area highly unstable, 
the coastlines are because they're subject to the effects of sea level rise. And the tribunal determined that if the coastline were to change in the future, that shouldn't affect the allocation of maritime jurisdiction established by the award. And in the South China Sea case on which I worked as registrar, one portion of the Philippines' claims concerned allegations of failure to protect the marine environment in connection with the building of artificial islands on fragile coral reef systems. And the tribunal interpreted that treaty, including um, taking into account broader network of obligations under environmental treaties. So certainly been evident in the interstate cases historically, but also with investor state cases. For example, investment cases might concern instances where it's the state complaining about the environmental failings of the investor, as was the case in Bilcom versus Canada, which concerned environmental limits to the expansion of a quarry, Chevron Ecuador, which concerned claims arising from court action over alleged pollution by the investor, and there have been cases about real estate projects in Costa Rica where developments might have impinged on turtle breeding grounds. There were also cases where the investor was complaining about the failings by the state with respect to environment protection, as in the case of Allard versus Barbados, which involved an investor in a wildlife sanctuary that took the state to task for not implementing environmental obligations. And I'll speak more about the kinds of investor state cases we're seeing in relation to renewable energy and climate change later. But obviously over the last decade or so, there's been a sharp increase in cases relating to regulation of solar and wind energy investments. And finally, I also noticed environmental issues arising in straight contractual disputes at the PCA, whether those related to clean development mechanism projects under the Kyoto Protocol or even disputes between project owners and consultants uh, relating to such projects. So uh, across the gamut of cases handled by the PCA, we saw environmental issues arising in different forms. Thank you, Judith. I would also add that there are reports, notably by the ICC, of purely commercial cases relating notably to representations and warranties made in the sale of plants or in relation to contaminated sites that date from the years 2000, for example. So this is another example that the environment, arbitrating environmental claims is not new. Let's turn to the types of disputes out of which environmental claims can arise, and they are wide-ranging. For example, if you consider infrastructure and construction projects alone, claims can rise out of pollution of the construction sites during the performance of the works or the discovery of site conditions that were not expected and which caused delays to the works and additional costs. Claims can also arise from the requirement to obtain permits for the performance of the works or due to evolving regulations for the protection of the environment, which also cause delays and costs to be incurred. Also in infrastructure projects, such as water treatment plants, wind farms, extraction of natural resources, or plants notably in the energy sector, it is also not uncommon to have specific local environmental regulations that need to be taken into account or the intervention of administrative decisions that impact the party's contractual arrangements and out of which disputes may arise. I imagine that you have encountered a number of other types of disputes that you would like to mention, Judith. 
Well, that's right. And you, you've covered a broad range of commercial contract type disputes. Um, I had mentioned a rising number of cases in the investor state context, specifically uh, relating to it, the sorts of environmental regulations that you've touched on. And there are, rough, there are kind of two categories of those disputes. One are the treaty arbitrations commenced by entities with prior investments in emissions-intensive industries, so fossil fuels, coal, that have been impacted by states' environmental protection measures. And some examples might include the Rockhopper versus Italy case in which a UK investor with interests in a hydrocarbon deposit in the Adriatic Sea had its concession denied following environmental reforms by the Italian government. In Lone Pine versus Canada and NAFTA case, a US oil and gas company which had permission to explore shale gas initiated a claim when its permits were cancelled under a moratorium on fracking that had come into play after extensive protests and environmental impact studies. The Westmoreland Mining versus Canada case is another interesting one where measures were introduced in the Alberta province to bring forward the timeline for coal-fired electricity plants to fit out carbon capture technology or close. Uh, that timeline was brought forward. And the claimant doesn't allege that they didn't have the right to regulate in that manner, but rather it should have been compensated in the same way as Canadian companies. That's a US claimant. The other case that I flagged earlier were the the new cases under the Energy Charter Treaty that have been brought against the Netherlands government by Uniper and RWE that directly relate to the coal ban that has been implemented as a result of the uh, litigation forcing the government to comply with its Paris obligations. Now, the other category of investor state claims, which we are seeing almost daily new cases, are those relating to solar and wind energy Dozens of cases against Italy, the Czech Republic, Romania, Ukraine and Canada about that. Probably the country that's faced the most is Spain, which has faced over 40 lawsuits from investors in its solar energy sector. So basically, you know, as early as 2004, Spain had started putting in place new renewable electricity incentive scheme, which included generous feed-in tariffs. program was very successful, probably too much so, and by following the financial crisis and a deficit in this electricity system, in 2010, Spain implemented a number of measures retracting some of the original features and rolling back some of the subsidies that had attracted the investors in the first place. So they started limiting production hours or reducing the length of government support, imposing new taxes or eliminating the tariff system. And that's led a number of foreign investors to sue Spain alleging that the regulations created instability or violated their legitimate expectations as part of the obligation to accord fair and equitable treatment. Spain's had some success in defending the claims but has been ordered to pay hundreds of millions of euros to investors in others. You know, some factors that might affect those different results include the extent of the investor's knowledge of risks at the time of investment or whether specific commitments have been made to them. Now, they've proceeded in different ways. Some have gone to annulment. There have been enforcement attempts here in Australia. And interestingly, Spain itself has introduced a new regulatory regime, which has led some of the investors um, to settle their claims. Now, outside the investor state framework, you've mentioned a number of contexts in which 
disputes um, between um, parties from different countries might resort to international arbitration. Another massive area will be uh, in relation to finance of all these projects and um, several development banks who are investing in green energy projects as well as the Green Climate Fund have included arbitration clauses uh, in their standard contracts. And the, renew- the carbon credit trading scheme is another area where the PCA saw some activity and is the, the new system still being negotiated uh, for the Paris Agreement, but again, a potential area for disputes. Faced with the increasing presence of environmental components in arbitration, arbitral institutions have stepped up and taken initiatives to best tackle the subject, the first of which, to my knowledge, was the Permanent Court of Arbitration. Would you care to briefly outline what these initiatives are, Judith? Sure. So as you mentioned, a relatively early development, which is already 20 years old, were the PCA optional environmental rules. For So these are optional rules for the arbitration of disputes relating to the environment and or natural resources. They were developed by an expert working group. They're based on the UNCITRAL rules, but they're adapted with some specific features, including the creation of a panel of expert arbitrators, as well as scientific experts, which are nominated by the member states of the PCA. And there are provisions in there about Uh, technical processes, confidentiality. There have been about half a dozen or so cases already which have used those rules and they've also been adopted in a number of standard industry contracts like the Emissions Trading Association, which I mentioned earlier. In 2015, an IBA, International Bar Association Climate Justice Report, commended the PCA rules use as well as the use of the PCA generally as a preferred forum for environmental and climate change-related disputes. But that report also encouraged all arbitral institutions to take appropriate steps to develop rules and or expertise specific to the resolution of environmental disputes. And answering that call was the ICC, which set up a special task force to address the use of arbitration for resolution of climate change-related disputes. And they released a report last year or perhaps the year before identifying ways in which procedures can be enhanced for climate change-related disputes. And it contains lots of interesting examples, which you've already mentioned, Vanessa, as well as model language and some suggested case management strategies. Other institutions like the Stockholm Chamber and the Australian Centre for International Commercial Arbitration have been uh, taking initiatives to encourage thought leadership in this regard. There was the Stockholm Treaty Lab, and an essay competition at Akika last year for climate change. And last year, the IBA put out a climate crisis statement, which recognises the global challenge of climate change and sets out a number of ways the legal profession can address the challenge. And in the same vein, collectively, arbitral institutions have been collaborating with each other and engaging with stakeholders like business, civil society and states through a series of events um, like ones that We did a a COP21 in Paris and some subsequent conferences of states' parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And, of course, the pandemic has been a real game-changer for our field, as backed up by empirical studies like the White and Case Queen Mary survey, which showed the swift embrace of virtual hearings and also that most survey participants are keen to reduce the carbon footprint of arbitration. So arbitration institutions and practitioners have been rallying 
around efforts to green the process of arbitration itself, including Green Pledge and the recently launched Campaign for Greener Arbitration and other collaborations to adopt online platforms for hearings and case management. So the HKA at the Hong Kong International Arbitration Centre has shown some leadership in this regard. Akika has also participated in roundtables to consider the implementation of the green protocols for different users of international arbitration. I would just add in this regard that Reed Smith is an institutional sponsor of the Campaign for Greener Arbitrations and that we have had the pleasure of having Magdalene de Bruyère, a member of the Campaign Steering Committee, in another installment of the Women in Arbitration mini-series last month. Let's get to the core topic of today's discussion. What are, in your experience, the characteristics and difficulties to be tackled with to arbitrate environmental disputes? So in many many cases might simply involve arbitration as usual and look like any other kind of international commercial dispute with the similar procedural issues depending on the circumstances of the case. And between you and I, we've identified so many different types of dispute that some might just be straightforward, apply the contract to the facts, listen to what you know the project manager had to say, look at the correspondence, perhaps have an ex- expert in. Others have argued that these disputes are so unique that there should be a special court for the environment. Arguably, the nature of arbitration is sufficiently flexible to adapt to the special needs of environmental cases within the current frameworks. And I think there are a number of ways in which arbitrators and institutions have responded to particular challenges in cases with an environmental element that could be summed up under the themes of expertise, accessibility and expedition. So starting with expertise, some climate-related disputes may require a level of technical understanding or expertise, and this can be addressed in a number of ways within existing frameworks. First of all, it's up to the parties to design their process. And sometimes parties might decide to include expertise on the tribunal itself. They could appoint an arbitrator with appropriate expertise. They could ask the appointing authority to consider that expertise when making the appointment. Or they could craft an arbitration agreement which specifies the expertise. An example of that was the Kishinganga dispute, which I mentioned earlier, concerning the hydroelectric dam in Kashmir. And the arbitration agreement in the underlying agreement, the Indus Waters Treaty, provided for a seven-member tribunal, one of whom should be an engineer to be appointed by the Dean of Imperial College in London. A second example was one of the cases that I mentioned under the PCA environmental rules, which concerned a Kyoto Protocol project for sealing methane leaks on gas pipelines. And the parties there selected an arbitrator from that specialised list of arbitrators developed by the PCA with member states for purposes of the environmental rules. Alternatively, and more uh, usual, is rather than having a technical expert on the tribunal itself, the tribunal may decide to appoint an independent technical expert pursuant to powers available to it under most arbitral rules already. Examples include the South China Sea case that I mentioned, where one element of the claim concerned 
where the construction of artificial reefs was a violation of the obligation under Part 12 of the Treaty to protect the marine environment. And the Tribunal commissioned a team of three independent marine biologists to prepare a report. And that report, if you read the award, proved crucial to the findings on environmental harm. In the investor-state context in Perenco versus Ecuador, the Tribunal expressed some frustration with what I would call in shorthand the hired gun nature of the party-appointed expert, and its solution was to appoint its own independent expert to determine the extent of contamination at issue in Ecuador's environmental counterclaim. Now, sometimes these experts might conduct site visits with the tribunal, as was done to assess the extent of sea level rise in the Bangladesh-India maritime dispute that I mentioned, or environmental contamination, as was done in uh, the Chevron Ecuador case. Um, already this procedure is available under existing mechanisms. So the second type of procedural adaptation that might be required um, concerns transparency or accessibility. And due to the public interest nature of disputes with climate change or environmental elements, tribunals may be asked to allow for publication or information about the case. They could be asked to open hearings to the public or allow non-parties to participate. And examples of cases with multi-stakeholder or public health elements where tribunals have managed to balance transparency concerns with confidentiality concerns include the Philip Morris Australia case and the Bangladesh Accord arbitrations, and both involve detailed confidentiality protocols drawn up in consultation with the parties so that certain information of precedential value uh, or public interest was made public and other business confidential information was kept confidential. The case of Guaracachi in Bolivia concerned a project finance through carbon credits, and there the underlying treaty was silent on transparency, but the tribunal applied transparency provisions that were inspired by the 2012 US model BIT. And increasingly, states are writing transparency requirements into their treaties. A recent example applying this is the Renko Peru case under the US-Peru Free Trade Agreement, which provided for transparent hearings and a virtual hearing was web-streamed a few months ago that can still be watched on the PCA's website. And in a number of cases, um, there have been attempts by non-parties um, to be involved in some way, whether that's by making amicus submissions, for example, the Netherlands and the European Commission in the Achmea case, or the European Commission in a number of intra-EU treaty cases involving solar energy, and a number of neighbouring states in the South China Sea also had its service status. Um, two further points I'd make on that thing um, is just to be very careful for uh, intervening parties to check and comply with any requirements for such interventions. There was an interesting decision by an ICSID tribunal just a couple of months ago um, which found that a movement, an environmental justice movement, which actually didn't have legal personality and wasn't able to identify with sufficient specificity who it was representing, they were not allowed to submit an amicus curate brief. So that was uh, an interesting one in a case called uh, Capus and Cassidy versus Guatemala decision a couple of months ago. And I mentioned briefly that of this new wave of treaties which are inserting provisions on 
transparency, I should have mentioned earlier in the context of investor state claims that a lot of these new treaties are specifically providing carve-outs for government regulation with respect to environmental protection or climate law. And a recent example is the Canadian model FIPA Foreign Investment Protection Agreement that was just released a couple of weeks ago. The third adaptation that I mentioned related to expedition, that is climate-related disputes or environment-related disputes may occasionally require speedy disposition. Again, this I think can be achieved within existing mechanisms or with proactive parties writing deadlines into their arbitration agreements, as was the case in two fisheries disputes at the PCA that were brought with respect to migrating fish populations and the total catchable net allowed that the parties there wrote in a six-week period to get a decision from the tribunal. And many arbitral institutions have introduced emergency arbitrations and expedited arbitrations, and an UNCITRAL working group is also looking at that topic now. Fascinating. Time is flying, so I will now move on to my last question to you. In your opinion, is arbitration an appropriate forum to resolve environmental disputes or claims and in in the affirmative to what extent? So I think this question can tie back into some of the themes that we went over in the introductory remarks which places arbitration in the context of a much wider legal landscape of other claims and actions and legal proceedings going on in this field. Some issues will be more appropriately dealt with in the courts, in treaty negotiations, in parliaments or in boardrooms. The Federal Court of Australia case that I mentioned, for example, you know, it was brought by seven teenagers against an administrative decision by the Minister for the Environment. That kind of matrix of players is, I think, more appropriately dealt with by the courts. But where arbitration will be most appropriate is for disputes with a transboundary element. Um, So the parties are from two different countries, maybe even a third country from where their project is taking place. The parties desire a neutral and flexible dispute resolution mechanism with an enforceable outcome. And of course, that they have consented to such a process. And I think what um, the cases we've discussed today, both the inside and outside of arbitration show is that this is a complex legal landscape where lawyers have shown real creativity and innovation in adapting a wide variety of causes of action nationally, regionally and internationally. And all practitioners, regardless of their area of specialty, are well advised, I think, to familiarise themselves with the science as well as developments in the field of environmental protection and climate change. There are multiple ways that they can contribute in a pro bono capacity or to capitalise on the many dispute resolution opportunities in the emerging green economy. I think all the more so in the post-COVID era where the focus will be on rebuilding the economy but in rebuilding a green economy. Well, unfortunately, that's about all we have time for. Judith, Thank you very much for your time and insight and this insightful discussion. I hope our listeners will have found this discussion informative and as thought-provoking as I did. 
Thank you for tuning in to this latest installment of our Arbitral Insights Women in Arbitration miniseries podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and hope you will tune in for the next one. Thank you. Thank you. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Joseas de Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, readsmith.com, and our social media accounts at LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.